Hello and welcome to the Schwepp with a special interview. I'm speaking with Dr. Lena Saif, who specializes in Islamic magic mm-hmm. and other esoteric aspects of Islam. You're a medievalist primarily, but you're mm-hmm. also interested in later stuff. Yeah, especially like European early modern. Early period. modern. Lena, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. Thank you um, for inviting me. I wanted to ask you about this conference that's just happened because it's a bit of a milestone in the study of mm-hmm. Western esotericism. Mm-hmm. This was the NC conference, the yep. European Network for the Study of Islamic Esotericism or mm-hmm. Islam in Esotericism. Apparently the name has not quite been nailed down yet. Mm-hmm. 12th to 14th of June 2018 in mm-hmm. Venice yep. in rather an amazing island venue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and you had a hand in organizing this. I didn't have a, an, a hand in organizing this particular conference, but I am one of the founding members of uh, the network that organized this. And it was um, an inaugural conference for that network. So before we get to the conference, maybe mm-hmm. can you tell me a bit about NC? Yeah. So NC is um, one of the networks active under ESWI. And SWE is the European uh, Society for the Study of Western Esotericism. And uh, Professor Mark Sedgwick, myself, and some others realized that there was a need for the Islamic perspective to be represented in the discourse of Western Esotericism because there was just like a scholarly need for that, but also from the Western Esotericism side, there was clearly an interest and a curiosity so it was decided that the best way to to do this and to fill this gap is by uh, beginning with establishing in 2016 a thematic network uh, there are other networks that are more geographic but this was a thematic one and yeah the the point of it was bridging the gap between the study of western esotericism and islamic esotericism and it's yeah it stands for the european network for the study of Islam and esotericism, or Islamic esotericism, and therein lies the interesting start of a very interesting conversation, I think. I think you should just, let's get into that conversation right sure, now. Sure, 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 sure. Um, the conversation that we hope to be starting is, is, is the very important question of, if we want to take part in the discourse of Western esotericism, the academic involvement with Western esotericism and consider ourselves representing the Islamic perspective, then the first question that concerned me and other was like, what is Islamic esotericism? But also, what's the relationship of Islam or how can we look at Islam within this construction called esotericism? And this is why there's a little bit of ambiguity in the title and so the first panels that we had before the inaugural conference was at um, SWE's conference, big conferences, and we had two panels that dealt with the issue of deviant knowledge and our panels dealt with deviant knowledge and Islamic esotericism. And the conversation was very interesting, the challenges were very manifest. uh, mostly around the questions of uh, pinning down some of the terminology. Can we transfer some of the challenges and problems that uh, one encounters when one delves into the idea of Western esotericism in the Islamic esotericism context? Like the idea of deviant knowledge, is that something that has parallels in the Islamic context and so it was it was very very interesting panels and with very interesting questions and and it became very clear uh that year that yeah we need we need a conference for this (laughs) so yeah and so the conference at venice it was a three-day full um, international conference tell me about the conference then how did it go um the the conference went really well the theme or the title of that session was Common and Comparative Esotericism, Western Islamic and Jewish. And the idea behind 
selecting this theme was to establish relevance. And you have the Western esotericism uh, field kind of established and to some degree uh, the Jewish esotericism, Jewish esotericism has been present in Western esotericism studies for a while. So I think the point was to begin with uh, a comparative discussion so that we can see uh, the relevance of Islam to these to these discourses and this material. Mm. And, and do you feel like you achieved that? I think we achieved that in, in different levels. Uh, the first one is the most obvious one, which is um, you have perspectives from Kabbalah, perspective from Western, so-called Western esotericism, that immediately uh, elicited like, aha, aha I, I, can, I, can, I can relate to that. I can, I can talk about this idea in the Islamic context. So in that sense, it facilitated a very interesting and fruitful conversation. So this is the more, if you want, the positive aspect of it. The, the, the other positive aspect of it was the fact that it actually highlighted the problems with beginning with a comparative theme because what it highlighted and it's very important to be highlighted that there is a tendency due to the lack of a well-chewed and digested idea of Islamic uh, esotericism and, and adjectives like esoteric there was a sense that these terms were used a bit unreflectively we need to figure out uh, methodological frameworks. We need to look at it theoretically as well, but also read texts because mm. there's so much to be unpacked, so much to be read, so much to be uncovered, manuscripts in libraries all over the world because, it, because it's new, because it's fresh and it kind of slipped, these materials slipped through the institutional system. So there's a lot to be done and it just highlighted these venues quite quite clearly. I wonder if you could paint a picture for our listeners who, like everyone else, aren't going to know anything about Islamic esotericism mm -hmm. um, because just basically you and your mates do. Um, yeah. You say there's a lot of texts. Like, what are you talking about here? What kind of texts? How many texts? Yeah. How unknown is this stuff outside yeah. of Islamic cultures? Yeah. Well, How much of it is still known in Islamic cultures, like medieval stuff, for example? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good and very important question. And that's, again, one of the paths that we <laughs> kind of need to, to go through. But um, to just give you some idea, generally when people hear about Islamic esotericism, other terms that come up that are more more accessible is things like Islamic mysticism. And the moment you... Uh, speak about Islamic mysticism, people think about Sufism. Right. And Sufism is, uh, Sufi studies is, is, is well established, uh, but the point of coining the term Islamic esotericism as an academic construct under which we can study certain material, which I'll talk about, is to also uh, include other things, other things that are not just Sufism. So what are these other things? These other things are difficult to pinpoint because again it's so new we're still trying to fit, figure out what fits in but in my opinion it is things that deal with the question of of viewing the world as text and viewing the quran as a text that reveals hidden things so sufism fits in that in a way because a, a sufi is trying to make manifest to her heart the, uh, the, the, the divine world, which is not immediately apparent to the senses, to the imagination. And so a Sufi would try to experience it. And in my opinion, that you know justifies putting it under this label. But other things can include things that are, haven't been institutionalized as, as Sufism. And that includes early material like 
Ikhwan al-Safa or the Brethren of Purity who were a secret brotherhood um, from the 10th century, so quite early. No one knows who, who they were. Uh, they kept that secret mm-hmm. <laughs> quite esoterically. <laughs> and, uh, but they have this encyclopedia, a huge work called Rasa'il Ikhwan al-Safa, so the Epistles of the Brethren of Purity. And it's in, in like I, I look at this work as a guide to the reader to view the dynamics of the universe uh, and to present the reader the universe, whether it was the manifest aspects of it or the hidden aspects of it, as knowable, as accessible. But it's accessible to people who are willing to look at nature-text and the Qur'an as text, as having uh, more hidden meanings, more um, secrets to be to be unpacked. Right. So the Risa'il, um, for those who have never heard of it, um, are often considered to be a product of the encounter between Islam and Platonist materials mm. that have come into Islam. Mm-hmm. So this is a form of uh, Islamic Platonism to oversimplify and sort yeah. of give just to give a general location. Yeah, yeah, and and these were produced just to to mention these were produced in in what we know now as Iraq, Basra, probably, well, possibly. Basra, possibly, but it, we're not hundred percent sure. Mm. And they were really influential um, yeah. at the time. So. One strand of esotericism here then is, if I can rephrase it, mm. applying esoteric hermeneutics mm. to the world. Yeah, it, yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is also the result of uh, another discussion that was active then, which is what is the nature of prophecy? Because mm. if prophecy is the most sublime kind of knowledge because it's direct straight from the divine into the, into the heart or the, or the mind. So what do we make with what the ancient Greek sources hmm. say about the processes of revelations and how can we incorporate that into the uh, the notion of nubuwa, so prophecy in the Islamic sense, like Muhammad receiving the message from Jibreel. Hmm. And Bearing in mind that that topic was not controversial the way it might sound right. talking about it. Now, it was uh, an intellectual problem that people were, were, were dealing with because of the importance of ancient Greek texts right. to the intellectual activity of 10th century Baghdad, for example. So, and, and in the, the epistle on, the, on crafts, they talk about... They at least mm. um, they talk about two forms, two ways you might learn a craft. One, like the philosophers, mm-hmm. through the exercise of your own aql, your mm-hmm. own intellect, or another way is just to be taught it, um, like the mm. prophets. Mm-hmm. So to have a divine teacher, the the interplay of two modes of um, epistemology, let's say, mm. coexisting side by side, yeah. very harmoniously. Yeah, yeah. But the main thing that the Ikhwan al-Safa, I think, try to emphasize is that one way, one way of thinking and doing, which the one that involves directing one's attention to the nature of the divine, so everything that we do is for the sake of knowing the divine, is a much more sublime knowledge, even things like crafts. So if you make something as a craftsman, but you make it with this kind of perspective and attitude, then what you're going to get is something that on different dimensions better. And also it implies also a distinction between uh, a normal craftsman and the philosopher craftsman who adds a different dimension to their work, a different intentionality as well to mm. their work. And that makes the philosopher-craftsman uh, belonging to a kind of elite 
right and different than the regular normal craftsman who's making the same object but with a different attitude hmm. mm-hmm. so sacralizing different aspects of human yeah. life or all yeah. aspects of human yeah. life yeah for the sake specifically of creating uh, a society which is something that they they I do say explicitly creating a society that transcends things like sectarian problems things like you know even everyday problems it's just so it's not just transcending one's own self but transcending the community altogether it just sprung into my mind that there's there is a parallel here mm. very dangerous parallel very irresponsible mm. parallel between the risail and the rosicrucian manifestos mm. in that this 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 document that appears no one knows who wrote it it purports to be from some brotherhood and it's about putting an end to sectarian strife mm. through a higher uh, religious knowledge that transcends sectarian nonsense oh wow yeah i never thought of the, that that parallel but 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 it's very interesting isn't it yeah i mean with the with the ikhwan as-safa there 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 the 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 explicitness of this agenda is 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 there you have a couple of episodes where they tell other brothers how to uh, preach the ways to get to people's hearts and minds so that they can transcend these 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 the problems of of a non-reflective mode of doing and modes of of thinking and they actually call it as sunnah the third way now they're not they they don't necessarily explicitly say what's the first and the second way but it seems to be the third way is one that like you said looks at the world as a knowable whole and the philosopher the magician and the astrologer and the physician at-tabib which they mentioned they can all work together in a very holistic way to raise the self but also raise the community and bear in mind the time that that the Juan Safa were writing was a time of fragmentation it was the 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 decline kind of the abbasid uh, caliphate and the takeover of like local administrations there was some sectarian strife there were some you know serious social and political problems taking place so that's what they were trying to do it's a kind of like a religious reform or put it in another perhaps controversial way an esoteric religious reform again it sounds a little bit like the Rosicrucian Manifestos, yeah, Ketteris yeah. Paribus. There's a lot of Ketteris there that we have mm. to make a Paribus. But, mm. um, so that's one interesting aspect of Islamic esotericism. We'll, of course, be doing several episodes on the Ikhwan Asafa when we get to them chronologically mm-hmm. in the main podcast. So I don't want to spoil everything. Mm. But um, interesting because it has elements of esoteric esotericism but is also in really engaged with the mainstream political problems of the day right? mm, mm. so some people when they think of esotericism think of um occultists cloistered in some attic room somewhere mumbling incantations mm. and definitely not your politically engaged mm, person mm, but mm. when you study esotericism across cultures you realize that's ne- definitely not been the yeah. case the majority mm. of the time esotericism has very often been a powerful political actor or at least wanted to be yeah yeah that's that's definitely true and um which, which brings me to an important point which is this this idea that only a mainstream uh kind of islam can be political and everything that might seem as marginal or so-called heterodox or things like that must be less confrontational because of its nature as being marginal being on the side and so you get this this you know this false idea that sufism is definitely apolitical mm-hmm. it, and sunnism must be like political and so and that's a that's it's pretty much a modern idea but it did i would say tarnish uh, in some cases the way we looked at the past because we were anachronistically applying this where like you said the ikhwan as-safa 
perhaps they didn't succeed in a sunnah thalitha, but they were explicit about their objective, is that sectarianism is wrong, and we propose esoteric knowledge as what assuages these problems, hmm. and at the same time, not only heals these wounds, but completely transcends and sublimates society. Hmm. You can also look at, to um, more recent examples of Sufis being involved in politics in the most direct ways to, to realize that that's just a nonsensical yeah. um, take on Sufis. Or it's, a, it's, a, it's not a historical take on Sufism. Mm-hmm. It might be some idealized Sufism. Yeah. When you think of the, the Russian invasion of Chechnya, the first one, yeah. first and second, I believe, which were known as the Murid Wars, Oh, right. Because yeah. they were being fought off by Naqshbandi um, murids, uh, students. They were, mm. they were basically fought off by a Sufi order yeah. out of Chechnya. So this is some very politicized Sufis who are like, get yeah. out of our country. Yeah, yeah. But also in the, um, especially in the USA, this political direction of, uh, you know, getting into religious dialogue um, often to the, the, the conversation gets started by that notion that we need to talk more to Sufis because they are inherently apolitical. Thus, they will be the one who will aid us in combating ISIS, Daesh, and all of that. So you see the paradox. On the one hand, there is like this particular group of uh, the esoterically inclined they're apolitical but they become politicized right by because we can use them as our friendly muslims yeah exactly they are the friendly muslims they are the mystical ones therefore they don't care about politics and 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 it's all about love and 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 when when in fact that's just not true it's it's a it's a very false and actually quite dangerous dichotomy because it traps the majority of Muslims between a Sufi and an extremist. Right. <laughs> so if you are a practicing adherent Muslim who's neither... Which is more than a billion people yeah, on the planet, so, probably. So the, 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 the majority becomes more marginalized. Right. So um, that was a very interesting little trajectory mm. and I want to bring it back to the the question of typologies or just ideas of what might fit under the category of um, Islamic esotericism that mm-hmm. you discussed at your inaugural conference mm. um, so we have the Ikhwan Safa, mm-hmm. very good candidate very yeah. unique and wonderful um, medieval Islamic document that we have mm-hmm. what else comes in when you look at Islamic esotericism you mentioned the occult sciences earlier so yeah. astronomy astrology, um, and various forms of magic. Yeah. Um, talismanic magic is very big in the Islamic world and in, in all over the place in yeah. different times. Do these, are these to be studied under this rubric as well? Um, they can, they can be studied under this rubric, but to be able to answer this question, we need to start to, uh, what I've been referring to as contouring the field. Um, so what falls within it. So the occult sciences uh, or al-ulum al-khafiya. Um, so we have Arabic, a we have a native Arabic term which translates as yeah, occult uh, sciences. Occult sciences. That's a good starting place. Yeah. In the early Abbasid period, so in also in the 8th century, 9th century, 10th century. These were sciences that were studied under natural philosophy. Right. So Astrology does astronomy, and I'm saying astrology does astronomy because the, the distinction was, was not there. Magic, alchemy, and other forms of, 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 of occult practices were being theorized as a branch of natural philosophy because what these sciences do, it, it, they make clear and manifest universal and, di- and and natural dynamics so the which are hidden which are hidden so the the job of the occult scientist is to understand nature 
But nature also meant the celestial world. All, nature also meant uh, evolution, divine volition that worked through natural dynamics. So the question is, when it's presented like that, is that esoteric? Right. right? Or is it, should we be studying this in history of science, basically? Or, yeah, or, or history of science. And that's a question that I, I don't have an answer to. But mm. I am inclined to take back or look back at Islamic esotericism based on the adjective esoteric. And the word esoteric can find an equivalent in the Arabic word, botan. Botan means like completely stripped down. The way you get it in dictionaries, <laughs> in early dictionaries, um, is these things that are hidden and are not immediately known by the senses, by ima imagination and by the intellect. And this is not only pertaining to nature, but also, as I said earlier, exegesis of the Quran. So if we take it back to this meaning, to this definition, then these sciences can belong to Islamic esotericism because they are dealing with hidden phenomena. And interestingly, medicine was also considered an occult science explicitly because it looks at symptoms. Not at the, the causes of the symptoms, because yeah, they're invisible. It's, it's, it, but it starts with the symptoms, and then from the effects you learn the causes, and that's kind of, kind of the doctrine at that, especially at the early <clears throat> period. But the epistemological foundation of this, this way of thinking was the result of engagement with a lot of translated texts, with negotiating revelation and Quran and scripture and, and, and its relation to nature. Um, but what happens in approximately the 11th century with the institutionalization of Tasawwuf is... That's Sufism for Sufism, our non-specialist audience. Yeah, is that you have an emphasis on another way of knowing. And that is not to say that that way of knowing did not exist before, but here you have a new or um, a different or a shift of emphasis on the way knowledge of the hidden can be perceived. And for the Sufis, for example, um, it was through a direct revelation from God that would enable us to know truly the hidden world. So by reading texts, whether it was na nature or the Quran, as signs, not as causes. And so cause is sababiyya, causality is sababiyya. You, so you see a lot of debates on how can sababiyya, can causality really reveal anything about the divine world? Can you know, can you know the creator through his creatures? The natural philosophers would say, yeah, you, yeah, you can, um, because you can trace that etiological, the etiological links. You can do inductive reasoning. Exactly. But the, the Sufis were, um, were saying something a little bit different. It's like, no, because it's, it's, it has to come not through the mind, not through the process of intellection, but you have to polish your heart. And they use that uh, image a lot. You have to polish your heart like a mirror so that God and the divine can reflect it, itself on it. Mm. And a technological note, mirrors in, in the ancient and medieval world tended to be polished metal which was prone to being to corrosion. So the, the image of polishing a mirror, if you think of a mirror as a piece of glass, doesn't mm. really make any sense. Yeah, yeah, but if yeah. But if it's a corroded bit of brass that you have to polish and polish and polish and it slowly gets brighter yeah. and brighter, then yeah. it does make sense. And you polish it through contemplating the divine and through following paths and through learning from a master and engaging in exercises, spiritual and physical exercises that would quiet down the analytical and the discursive mind 
to such a point that it would let the heart do the reaching, reaching out mm. to things that are hidden. But it's a passive, it's a, it's a very passive process because you're doing all of these things, but it's up to the divine mm. to, to reveal. Whereas for the, for the uh, natural philosopher or the philosopher, it was not passive. It's an active investigation through understanding philosophy, causality, natural dynamics, astrology, because you need to know astral influences. And in a lot of ways, which is interesting, in the earlier material, the investigation was a lot star-centric. Mm. And later it becomes God-centric, if that makes sense. I mean, God is ultimately the object of the ultimate aspect of the universe to be known. But you do it through an intellectual, discursive, almost like syntactic process. Right. Whereas for the Sufis, and not just Sufis, but even like, for lack of a better word, the mystics of Andalus before Sufism, for example, was there. You have Ibn Masarra um, and, and others who you are not necessarily Sufis, but were very much engaged with this idea that the world is full of emanations, full of signs, and the, the sage is the one who contemplates these signs in order to, to be able to read a book of creation directly. But it's, it's God-centric. You don't get so much astrology you, you, as much as you get in the earlier material. Right. Because you had to know this intermediary world between the divine and the mundane terrestrial world. There's the celestial world, and that's kind of your conduit, that stuff. And so you needed to know it. Do you mean to imply that there's some kind of cosmic ascent going on, intellectual or otherwise? Or does that just reflect? Yeah, no, no, there, there was, and 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 the idea of the ladder, you you would actually find it in in. Ikhwan al-Safa and, and Ghayat al-Hakim and other texts of like, yes, you have to start with the effects. So the effects take place in the terrestrial world. The celestial world acted like a kind of efficient cause. And then you step on that ladder of, of causality until you reach the causer of the uncaused causer, God. Hmm. Now... You mentioned the Ghayat al-Hakim. Mm. I'd like to talk about that wonderful text. Yes, you know yes. quite a bit about that yeah, text. Yeah. Um, but before we do, I, I'm just thinking, listeners are going to be thinking to themselves, okay, she's talking about Sufism. I've heard of Sufism. It's, yeah. it's the mystical branch of Islam. Mm-hmm. I've heard of whatever that means, right? Yeah. I've heard of philosophy. And yeah. she seems to be talking about philosophy an awful lot here. Mm. But what may not be apparent is that this philosophical outlook on life and this way of um, approaching learning about reality, right? That was mm. prevalent in, in these, these two different sort of ways mm. that, are, that are prevalent in Islamic culture. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very philosophical, and, mm-hmm. but this is what like, lies behind magical practice yeah. and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So this, this whole magical worldview that we get in, in medieval Islam, mm-hmm. correct me if, I'm, if you don't think this is a fair thing to say, but is informed by this... this quite rigorously philosophical approach or series mm. of approaches that are very well thought out, very cogent, yeah. and they make perfect sense. Yeah. And you don't even need, although both approaches can be based in exegesis of the Quran, yeah. you know, like the signs are mentioned everywhere, yeah. Yeah. and the, the verses of the Quran are ayat, they're signs, yeah. but you can also just think of it's some kind of just platonic, platonist sort of approach to reality, quasi-platonist approach to reality, you wouldn't even need from just this bare minimum description you've given. You could almost subtract the Qur'an from it. And um, so this will surprise people, I think. Yeah, and, and, and understandably so. Both natural philosophers, Muslim natural philosophers, and ascetics, mystics, Sufis, whatever that means, they, both groups aimed ultimately to know, to know God. Um, as I said, the first group... They wanted to do that through his created uh, world, the effects. And the second group 
through the renunciation of the world of the effects. And the moment we talk about effects, then we're talking about the causes of these effects. And the moment we talk about causes of these effects, the person that comes into mind, the philosopher that comes into mind, is not Plato, Aristotle. Aristotle. Yeah. And, and so magicians and astrologers were very keen on developing theories of astral influences that are reformulating and actually developing Aristotelian theories of causality. And the, f the first actually to do it quite systematically is an astrologer, um, Abu Mashar al-Balkhi from the 8th century. And Abu Mashar al-Balkhi basically, it's been argued that he was responsible for astrologizing Aristotle and Aristotelianizing astrology because his argument is that the world, the celestial world is connected to the terrestrial world because it's its efficient cause and the efficient cause is one of the four Aristotelian causes, the material cause, the formal cause, the efficient cause and the teleological cause. And the efficient cause is basically the cause that is responsible to move things from a state of potentiality to actuality. It's, it's, the, instru it's the instrumental cause that brings, into, brings something into this world. And uh, Abu Mashar and Al-Kindi, for example, but Al-Kindi was a philosopher who wasn't necessarily di directly uh, involved in what we can call occult sciences, although there's one text on astral magic that is attributed to him, but that's an, another kind of war. That's another episode. That's another episode, but they were very um, explicit about things like astrology and astral magic, that these are natural sciences because they have Aristotelian foundations. And what is interesting is that obviously Plato and Plotinus were known the Enneads 4 to 6 were paraphrased, but here's the kick. It was paraphrased as the theology of Aristotle. Right. And so can I just back up yeah, for our listeners? Um, the point here is that through a very complex and somewhat misunderstood or poorly understood process, some texts of the late Platonist philosopher Plotinus, mm -hmm. and not just some texts, but texts from the later Enneads, which are the ones where he deals with the highest realities, the mm. ineffable one and the, the divine noose and so on, mm. made their way into Arabic through a mm. process we don't understand, possibly through Syriac intermediaries mm -hmm. and so on, and ended up somehow belonging in the corpus of Aristotle. So Aristotle, the philosopher that for Greek readers is known for his physics rather more than his metaphysics, mm -hmm. um, for the uh, Islamicate world is a philosopher with a very amazing uh, theological teaching mm. that he gets from, or theological is maybe not the best word, mm. but teaching of transcendent realities beyond mm. the universe that are the source of the universe mm. um, that we would never think of as Aristotelian. Mm -mm. Please go on. But that's also because there is no stark distinction that can be, like there's, you can't draw a line clearly between Neoplatonic ideas, Platonic ideas and Aristotelian ideas. No, you cannot. No. And there was a whole like philosophical program uh, that, that aimed to reconcile Aristotle and, and, and Plato. In, in late antiquity, in, in late the Greek antiquity, world. Yeah. But also in the, during the translation boom in the Abbasid period. I mean, that was one of the main concerns is like how to reconcile uh, both philosophers. And I think one of the manifestation of this uh, reconciliatory drive is these paraphrasals and these same translations. I mean, we need, we need to make sure that we understand translation different than how we translate today. It was uh, a, a, a translation by way of commenting, by its paraphrasing. And that in itself is, is fascinating. And the occult scientists were part of that endeavor. And so they had these sciences and they, they, they wanted to show that since, I mean, these are sciences that hope and aim to unpack natural dynamics and celestial dynamics. And therefore, they're subject to the same epistemological framework as other, other sciences. Okay. Mm. Now, talking about science as we are, mm. um, 
this brings me to the Rayat al-Hakim, which mm-hmm, we were just mm-hmm, speaking of. What's, mm-hmm. what's that text all about, very briefly? Right, the Rayat al-Hakim is a very cool text. I start with that. You can think about it as an early 10th century grimoire. And it was influenced by Ikhwan al-Safa. Uh, sometimes they were um, quoted verbatim. And it was written by an Andalusian occultist called Maslama al-Qurtubi, who's also a Hadith scholar. Right. And Maslama al-Qurtubi claims to have read hundreds and hundreds of texts on the subject of magic, and that the Ghayat al-Hakim is a distillation of his readings, but also it's not just a compendium where he gives recipes from the Greeks and recipes from the Indians and it, he, he, he weaves them into a worldview and that worldview is informed by what we're talking about causality and natural, natural philosophy and it's in four books and it has a sister text but the sister text is called Rutbat al-Hakim now just a word in the title the, what the titles mean Ghayat al-Hakim is the goal of the sage Rutbat al-Hakim, the alchemical text, is the rank of the sage. And they are two kind of sister sciences. And so they were written to be, not necessarily read together, like in parallel to each other, but they complement one another. So Rutbat al-Hakim, so the rank of the, the sage or the wise, is on alchemy and the other one is about magic. Hmm. So this um, text, which I hope we have the pleasure of interviewing you about mm-hmm. in um, several years' time when we get to Islam in the podcast, is interesting. Obviously, in our conversation so far, we haven't really talked about magic that much, mm-hmm. um, but magic is a huge part of Islamic esotericism, mm-hmm. surely. Mm-hmm. But as you've, as you've rightly pointed out, I think, that may not fall into an easy sloppy, prejudiced idea about what magic is, right? Mm. Now, this guy's a Hadith scholar. For those who don't follow Islam, uh, that means he's a religious authority of sorts. Mm. He, he know, he's studied this enormous body of texts attributed to the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. Um, so he's a legit mainstream dude, right? Yeah. Not just a mainstream dude, a, um, an authoritative mainstream dude mm-hmm. um, who's also writing books on magic and alchemy. Mm. So we have to take that into account for context, mm. right? This stuff is maybe esoteric, but it's not countercultural or forbidden, yeah. right? Yeah. And the other point I wanted to bring up, which I thought you might be able to make something interesting of, mm. is it seems to me that Rayat al-Hakim is a perfect test case for those who are still asking themselves at this point, I thought this podcast was about Western esotericism. Mm. Where's the Western, right? Mm-hmm. Because Ghayat al-Hakim is a proven, one, one of many, but yeah. a well-known and proven bridge between the Islamicate world and the Latin-speaking West. Yeah, because it was known as the Picatrix. So what's and the Picatrix then? The Picatrix is a tra- Latin translation of the Ghayat al-Hakim, which was uh, very influential on Western or like European occult philosophy. It was influential on people who you would put in the who's who list of occult philosophy, including Marsilio Ficino, uh, Cornelius Agrippa, and John Dee, and, and many, many others. And the translation is very interesting because it drops out certain things, it, leave, it, it keeps certain things, but all in all, it's, I would say, it's, with variation, it's, it's a, a semi-faithful <laughs> translation of the Arabic original. And it's, it's, it's fascinating because the Rayat al-Hakim actually did not have a continuously influential career in the Islamic world, but during the Renaissance, it was, it was so groundbreaking. And I think the reason is perhaps here you have, maybe for the first time, a text that explicitly talks about magic, explicitly talks about 
spirits. But there's no demons. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, there's philosophy. There's, there's, yeah, there's, there's Aristotle, there's all of these things. So, okay, so it, it, it gave a theoretical model to magic that can justify knowledge. So, in other words, it's not necromancy, it's not demonic, it's not dark arts. It's not, it's not at all that. Yeah, it's something no, utterly no, it's different something. than that. Well, I mean, I'm sure it depends on who you're talking to, but to, to those people that I, to, to the individuals that I mentioned, including Marcelli Ficino, priest. Yeah. You know, it, it, like, like Maslam al-Qurtubi, the author of Ghayat Hakim, Hadith scholar. Yeah. So... That, that was fascinating, that was interesting. Now they can talk a bit about and defend this form of knowledge by saying the role of the magician is basically to manipulate natural dynamics. It's not to invoke demons. And this is great. Mm. Yeah, and I think this is perhaps a large part of why, why it, was, it was very successful. And also it was just to be, it was translated uh, first into Castilian by uh, under the patronage of Alfonso the tenth Alfonso the Great, um, sometime between the twelve fifty six and twelve fifty eight. That's interesting. So, so a um, Spanish monarch, yeah, someone who's um, perhaps has a somewhat adversarial relationship with his Islamic neighbors mm. on a political level, yeah, is saying we need this science book or this. This book of important knowledge, however yeah. he defined it at the time, yeah. in in our local tongue, so someone translate it now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, but but King Alfonso the Great was also very peculiar in that he showed interest in this material. There were other translations taking place under his patronage of lapidarios and 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 so many other material like like that. Right. Yeah. So he was a man of um, esoteric tastes, you might say. Occult science taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe this um, this conversation has given a, like a little tiny fragment of a taste of what it was like to be at the the conference you were at. In that we're talking, we're kind of journeying through different types of material from the Islamic world that could yeah. constitute what we mean by Islamic esotericism. Yeah, yeah. I think in in my work. Uh, right now, I I'm trying to think in terms of what are what are the principles of Islamic esotericism, and this is preliminary. This is set up to begin a conversation, and I think at least at this stage, what we can consider Islamic esotericism um, has to have uh, an exegetical principle. So. Islamic esotericism being pivoted on Quranic exegesis, which is why I was a bit hesitant calling the early material as is perhaps esoteric, but is it Islamic? Can we categorize it as Islamic esotericism? Which, which early material? Like Ghayat uh, al-Hakim. Even though, I, just to be clear, I actually do, do put them into this category, but especially in Ghayat in, in, in Ikhwan al-Safa, uh, Quranic exegesis is also uh, a principle that they talk about, but they extend it as like it's the, the the Quran is the Quran, but the universe is another Quran, so to speak. And so we need to know how to read them. And so, which you can get from the Quran, right? Yeah, exactly. So the first, I think, principle is this exegetical principle. The second one is an epistemological one, so whether it was an intellectual or or, or a revelatory um, occupation with hidden natural celestial phenomena, the divine realm, even the Qur'an itself. And the third principle is kind of like a perso- personal or even communal salvific investment through the enlightenment and the perfection of the human soul. Or, or the restitution of a whole community because we've been talking about philosophy together 
while we're discussing Islamic esotericism. So does that make Avicenna, for example, an esotericist? Well, certainly some of his works might be seen as Some of his ideas can be esoteric, but can we put Avicenna in the category of an esotericist? This is genuinely a question mm. for future research. Right. Because we're still figuring this out. But with those principles that I just mentioned, at least it helps us at this stage to kind of contour what can, what we can mean by Islamic esotericism. I look forward to watching this this conversation unroll over the coming yeah, years. It's yeah. going to be exciting stuff. Yeah, me too. Me too. And um, <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to um, document as, as it goes along for the yeah. podcast as well. Yeah. When's the next conference? Do we know yet? The next conference is going to be in 2020 in Marseille. But before that, there are going to be panels dedicated to Islamic esotericism in uh, 2019 at the Eswe conference, which will take place in Amsterdam. Looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. And is a volume planned from the first conference? Um, I'm currently editing with Professor Mark Sedgwick a special issue of the journal Correspondences, journal for the study of um, esotericism, and it's going to be dedicated to Islamic esotericisms. So um, it will include an article by myself titled predictably, What is Islamic Esotericism? Professor Mark Sedgwick is going to ask this question, is there an Islamic Esotericism? If he says no, then your article is kind of left out. I know, we've had this discussion before. (laughs) He says yes, just like a spoiler. Um, But also you have very interesting articles that... For example, there's going to be one about the um, esoteric experiences of the five percenters, others about the balls in in India. And so we're looking at the different currents of Islamic esotericism, and that's going to be a one of a kind publication, I think. Yeah. So you can find a link to to the online journal correspondences in the resources page of the podcast. If you go to info resources, you can also find the website for the NC and the SWE. Lena, safe. Thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Stay esoteric.